welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Rich Lusk on April 24th, Lord's Day service. Well, it is great to be with you today. Uh, My name is Rich Lusk. I am the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham. And uh, I I bring you greetings from the session there, from our congregation. We are really grateful to have been a part of getting your church launched. We were the sponsoring church uh, when this plant was uh, started. And I just have to say, wow, you have really launched. (laughs) There's no question uh, that this church has launched. There's a whole new reason to call Huntsville the Rocket City uh, because you all have taken off in my visits here every time I come. It's, it's, it's a larger congregation. You've grown tremendously. We're very thankful for that. And I think that growth really is a testimony, at least in part, to your leadership. Of course, we would say it's all due to the grace of God. But God uses good and faithful leadership to grow and mature churches. And you have certainly been blessed with competent and qualified leadership here, and that is an immeasurable gift and blessing. Today is truly an exciting day. It's a big step forward for Matt and for you all with his installation as pastor. As I said, this is all about bonding pastor to people and people to pastor. Uh, I've appreciated uh, my friendship with Matt and with his family for many years uh, and I know that he is doing a tremendous job here, uh, just doing tremendous work in your midst. It is traditional that when there is an ordination or an installation of a pastor, it's traditional to have a charge to that pastor and to the people, and that's what I want to do today. You can think of this as a charge. I'll primarily be talking about pastoral office, so certainly to Matt, but even as I talk about what pastors are called to do, you can see that as a way of shaping how you should understand his ministry, how you can best pray for him and the other elders here. Uh, I want to read for it, or <clears throat> excuse me, for us uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, the first five verses. Here are Peter's words, inspired by God, for us. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor being as lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you shall receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. A lot of people wonder what pastors are for. That's a question I get a lot. Matt probably gets it too. What do pastors do all week? What's a typical day in the life of a pastor like? Uh, There are some people who think that uh, pastors just show up on Sunday mornings. We only have to work a few hours a week, right? We show up, we preach, we pray, and then we're pretty much invisible the rest of the week. Uh, Pastoring is the proverbial indoor job with no heavy lifting. 
Uh, it's a job where it seems like you get paid to read and talk and teach. It doesn't seem like very much to many people. As we will see this morning, there is more to pastoring than that. Certainly more to it than what happens on Sunday morning. I would say what happens on Sunday morning is central to the life of the church and central to pastoral ministry. It might be the most important thing pastors do. It's certainly the most important aspect of the pastoral vocation, but there is much more to it. Uh, I've been in pastoral ministry in one form or another for, I think it's coming up on 27 years now. Uh, and, and during that time, that passage I just read from 1 Peter has really been an anchor to ground my work. I've come back to it again and again and again to help me in my self-understanding of what it means for me to be a pastor. One thing that's really interesting is Scripture does not provide a formal job description for the office of pastor. We tend to think in terms of job descriptions. You've got a position you want to fill. You publish a job description and find somebody who meets those criteria. Criteria. You don't have that uh, in the Bible. Oh, sure, you could point to Paul's pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. You could develop a job description from those, I suppose. This passage in 1st Peter 5 could be used to develop a job description, and I will do something like that here this morning. Uh, you could go back and Look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament priesthood, since that is the forerunner to New Covenant pastoral office. And there are several places in the New Testament where appeals are made back to the Levitical priesthood to teach us about pastoring. But you don't have a detailed job description anywhere. Instead of a detailed job description, what the New Testament gives us is a detailed list of qualifications. That's what the New Testament focuses on. The qualifications a man must meet to be a pastor. Paul provides an extensive list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1. And really here in 1 Peter chapter 5, we have qualifications as well. If they're not explicitly stated, they're certainly implied because Peter actually spends more of his words here. He spends more time describing how elders should shepherd than what that shepherding actually is. One of the reasons for giving such extensive attention to the qualifications for pastoral office in the New Testament scriptures is that by contrast, the old covenant priesthood was hereditary. It belonged to the tribe of Levi. You were born into it. Not so in the New Covenant. Now pastors are identified and qualified by the spirit, not by the flesh. That is to say, the Holy Spirit sets a man apart for the office by his character, his gifts, and his calling. And that is a calling that, yes, comes from within, but it's also a calling that comes from above. And it's a calling that is manifested through the church, through the life of the covenant community. But there is another reason for so much attention being given to the qualifications of the pastor. And it has to do with the nature of the work. The pastoral office is really in crisis today. I've got, of course, many friends who are pastors that I talk with regularly, and I hear this kind of thing from pastors all the time. The pastoral office is in crisis. Part of that crisis is due to the fact that many men have entered into the office who are actually not spiritually or morally qualified for it. They fail to check all the boxes that Paul and Peter give us. Further, there has been in our culture and even in the church a loss of respect 
for pastoral office. It used to be that the pastor was a prominent figure in his wider community. Not so today. Many pastors are frankly not respectable men. I've known many men uh, who've gone into the pastorate who were, quite frankly, very lazy. Uh, we've also seen many pastoral scandals. We've seen so many celebrity pastors who were exposed as frauds. And this kind of thing devalues the pastorate in the eyes of people, even in the church. But there's also a huge burnout rate. It's not just that a lot of pastors fail because they're not really qualified. There's also a huge burnout rate for pastors today. More pastors crash and burn than people do in just about any other profession. Uh, Aaron Wren recently did a report on this. Uh, a recent survey indicated that 40% of pastors have thought about leaving the ministry in the last year. And many are actually leaving the ministry. The COVID situation, the COVID crisis accelerated this, but pastoral burnout rates, pastoral failure rates, especially among younger pastors, were already high even before COVID. Those leaving the ministry even include pastors who are in very high profile jobs, what you might call dream jobs for a lot of pastors. Think of Jason Meyer at Bethlehem Baptist who succeeded John Piper or Abraham Cho at uh, Redeemer Church in New York City who succeeded Tim Keller. They had dream jobs as far as most pastors are concerned and yet they quit. One guy I know put it this way. He said, pastors set out to change the world and then get fired by the church for changing the bulletin. Now, maybe it's not quite that bad. Certainly it's not that bad everywhere, but a lot of pastors do have a rough go of it. You think about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' ministry was surrounded constantly by a storm of controversy that, of course, ultimately ended in his crucifixion. Uh, the apostle Paul had a very rough go of it. Pastors throughout history have had a very rough go of it. Pastors often find themselves surrounded by conflict and contention. Well, what is the solution. Uh, Aaron Wren in his article on this says, we live in a world, we live in a time in which the culture is becoming increasingly hostile to the truth, to the word of God, and to the church. He calls this negative world. We now live in a negative world as far as the church and the gospel are concerned. And so pastors, he says, face greater pressures and stresses. He says, negative world ministry requires pastors with Pauline toughness, that is toughness like Paul, both mental and emotional, as well as new approaches to structuring ministry. He says, all this means pastors will have to have the mental and emotional toughness displayed by the Apostle Paul if they're going to survive in a world of greater conflict. He says, we see these characteristics paradigmatically in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, Paul recounts the various physical trials he was first forced to endure, ranging from flogging to shipwrecks to being stoned and left for dead. He also recounts his mental and emotional strains. Paul writes, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? But Paul soldiers on through it all. We see his toughness on display again in 2 Timothy. Though imprisoned as a common criminal, facing execution and deserted by his friends, Paul continues his mission. He preaches the gospel at his trial, writes a letter of exhortation to Timothy, and models through his own behavior the instructions he gives to his younger protege. 
In America today, we thankfully don't face the same kind of physical persecution that Paul did. Yet while pastors today may not be called on to endure the physical trials that Paul suffered, tougher mental and emotional trials are already a reality for them. Wren is right. We can certainly learn from Paul how to pastor in an environment that is increasingly hostile to the church, to the scriptures, and to the gospel. But we can also learn these same lessons from Peter. Peter shows us as well how to minister in a world that is hostile to God's truth. And so this passage in 1 Peter 5 certainly can help Matt, just as it helps me. It can help give Matt uh, and his work among you definition as he seeks to serve you as your pastor and, and work alongside the other elders here. But it can also give you as the congregation guidance in helping Matt and your other elders in knowing how to pray for and support your elders in this church. And at the end of this passage, uh, Peter even gives direct instructions to the congregation. So we can touch on that uh, as we come to the end of this this morning as well. Well, what do we see in this passage? Uh, Peter calls himself a fellow elder in verse one. In other words, he's saying, I'm your fellow elder. As I'm speaking to the elders, he says, I understand you. I get you. I understand the burdens and the struggles of shepherding in the church. Peter's saying to the elders in the con of the congregation, I am one of you. Now, you may wonder what Peter means by elder here and why an apostle would call himself an elder. In biblical church polity, there are different types of elders. The way we use the terminology today, we would say all pastors are elders, but not all elders are pastors. So if you're a pastor, you're an elder, but if you're an elder, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are a pastor in terms of the way we use that terminology today. The office of elder in the old covenant included priests from the tribe of Levi, but also those men from other tribes who were called to be elders of the people. That's actually the language that's used in various places in the Old Testament, elders of the people. Only those elders who were priests ministered in the tabernacle at the altar. They had a sacramental Ministry. And of course, priests were also the ones who were the primary Bible teachers in the local synagogues. But they joined with the elders of the people in ruling, judging, making decisions for the whole of the community. And so you had two kinds of elders. You had priestly elders and you had, for, for lack of a better term, we could call non-priestly elders. Today, again, we would say pastors and ruling elders or ministers of word and sacrament and ruling elders. That's the kind of terminology we use. But elders a broad term here that can encompass all of that. So a lot of this applies specifically to Matt, but a lot of it also applies to all elders in the congregation. Peter says here he is a witness and a partaker, a witness to Christ's suffering and a partaker of the glory to be revealed. Now, I think when Peter here says that he is a witness to Christ's suffering, he's not talking about how he was an eyewitness to the cross. I think he could have claimed that, but I think actually what he's stressing here is what he has in common with the other elders who would not have been eyewitnesses to Jesus' crucifixion. He's describing himself as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, meaning he preaches and teaches the cross. 
He preaches and teaches Christ's suffering. That's always the center of pastoral ministry. Think of Paul saying, I want to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Paul witnessed to the sufferings of Christ through his preaching. That's what Peter is doing here. And I would say Peter witnesses to those sufferings, not just by how he speaks, but by how he lives, what he's willing to endure for the sake of the gospel. He doesn't just teach about Christ's sufferings. He comes to share in Christ's sufferings in the ministry. And thus he will also share in Christ's glory. That is always the pattern. Suffering leads to glory. The cross leads to the crown. Then Peter goes on to give instructions to the elders in verse two. He says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you as overseers. Here, Peter says, elders are shepherds. In fact, that word pastor is just another word for shepherd. Think about what we know of shepherds. What do we know about shepherding and sheep, especially from biblical history and the way the Bible uses shepherding imagery? What do we know about shepherds and, and sheep? Well, think of famous shepherds that we meet in scripture. Moses was a shepherd. Moses shepherded Jethro's flocks before he shepherded the nation of Israel. It's as if shepherding the animals was training for shepherding the people. Same with David. David was a shepherd in Jesse's field and that was his preparation for becoming king. David became God's royal shepherd overseeing and ruling the Lord's flock, the nation of Israel. Then of course there's Jesus who describes himself in John chapter 10 as the good shepherd. And he says, as the good shepherd, I will lay down my life for the sheep. That's what a good shepherd does. He'll give his life to protect his sheep. He says in John chapter 10, he says, my sheep know my voice. And he describes how he knows his sheep and calls them by name. He talks about false shepherds and hirelings there. He talks about how as the good shepherd, he will fight off wolves. And I think Peter actually echoes that passage here in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4 when he calls Jesus the chief shepherd. Matt and I and other elders and, and pastors in the church, we are under shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Our desire, as Matt affirmed in his installation vows this morning, our desire is to represent the chief shepherd to you to shepherd in such a way that we point you to Jesus. That's the whole point. Jesus is the chief shepherd. We are his under shepherds. Other places where you find shepherding imagery in the Bible, Psalm 23 describes the Lord as the shepherd of his people. He makes them to lie down in green pastures and leads them beside still waters. He comforts them with his rod and his staff. We might ask the question, what does a shepherd do? You know, shepherds in the ancient Middle East had a very hard job. Shepherds were kind of the cowboys of the ancient world. They were often rough men. Uh, they were used to having to fight wild animals. We know that from the example of David. I want you to think here about the job of a shepherd because that really teaches us about the job of an elder, the job of a pastor. I would put the shepherd's work in four categories. And I think I can make this easy for you to remember. Shepherds lead and feed and shepherds guard and guide. Shepherds lead and feed and shepherds guard and guide. So those four things, lead and feed, guard and guide. And we'll talk about those four tasks here for just a minute because I think they summarize what the work is all about. Shepherds lead. Shepherds lead the sheep. They have a real authority over the sheep. They rule the sheep. They take responsibility for the sheep. 
Now, a lot of times when you hear pastors, you know, when they talk about these kind of passages in scripture that talk about shepherds and sheep, one thing they will do is point out how dumb sheep are, and that's why sheep need to be led. Okay, I'm not gonna say that this morning. I'm not gonna say you're dumb and Matt and the other elders are smart. I, I don't think that's the point here. Ultimately, all of us are sheep who need Jesus as our good shepherd. But again, within the church, Jesus does designate certain men to represent him in a special way. The under shepherds. Pastors are chosen precisely because they are mature and exemplary Christians who are competent and therefore capable of leading the flock. They have manifested the character and the wisdom necessary to lead the flock. And sheep really do need shepherds because they don't always know what's best for them. Good pastors will give their people what they need, not necessarily what they want. People need to have their loves and their tastes and their sensibilities and their convictions formed. And that's part of the pastoral ministry, to form and shape the people, to shape the, the loves of the people, to reorder the loves of the people so that their priorities in life, the way they seek to live life, matches up more and more with the kind of life Scripture describes for the people of God. As leaders, elders, elders and shepherds form and shape the vision and culture of the church as a whole. They make decisions, they make judgments, they are responsible for ensuring the life and worship of the church is well-ordered and well-disciplined. Sometimes as leaders, shepherds have to make really tough calls. Further, shepherds lead the way in mission. Pastors are not to be like some army generals who stay far away from the field of battle, even as they command others to do dangerous things. No, pastors should be like Boniface. You know, Boniface, the eighth century missionary to the Germanic peoples, he went into what is present day Germany as a missionary and the Germanic people there worshiped Thor, the god of thunder at his sacred oak. And Boniface knew that to evangelize these people, he had to show them that Yahweh is stronger than Thor. And so he did what any self-respecting Christian missionary would do. He went and got an ax and he sharpened his ax and he carried his ax as he strode up to Thor's sacred oak. And in front of all of these onlookers, these people who worship the God of Thor, he defied the pagan God by swinging his ax at Thor's oak. He was determined to set the Germanic people free from their cruel and bloodthirsty religion. Of course, as Boniface started to chop Thor's sacred oak, the, the, the Germanic people standing around watching were expecting this ax-wielding servant of a god they'd never heard of to get struck by lightning or for something terrible to happen. They knew you do not mess with Thor's sacred oak. But something else happened. Instead of Boniface getting struck by lightning, a strong wind came out of nowhere. And before Boniface could even finish chopping down the tree, this mighty wind took it down, blew it straight to the ground. The people were amazed by this. They saw that Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a stronger God than Thor. And they converted on the spot. Boniface used the wood from the tree to build a Christian chapel right there. That's leadership. That's leading the people into mission. Our egalitarian age hates hierarchy. We hate authority. And, and that has robbed us of the very possibility of having heroic leadership 
like that. It ought not to be that way in the church. We should not try to flatten everything out. We should realize, yes, God has raised up some to positions of rule and authority in the church. Pastors are called to be leaders and they're called to lead the way, to be the tip of the, sword, uh, of the spear when it comes to the mission of the church. This is how Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary to India for many years, this is how he described it. He said, the task of the ministry, so he was talking about the, the pastor uh, the, the leader in the church. He says, the task of ministry is to lead the congregation as a whole in a mission to the community as a whole to claim its whole public life as well as the personal lives of all its people for God's rule. That is Matt's task, along with the other elders here, to lead you as a congregation in your mission to Huntsville, Alabama, to claim the whole public life of Huntsville as well as the personal lives of everybody who lives here for the rule of God. That's what you're called to do. That's really your mission statement. Newbingen goes on, he says, this means the pastor must equip all the members of the congregation to understand and fulfill their several roles in this mission through faithfulness in their daily work. It means training and equipping them to be active followers of Jesus in his assault on the principalities and powers which he disarmed on the cross. And it means sustaining them in bearing the cost of that warfare. The pastor is not like a general who sits at headquarters and sends his troops into battle. He goes at their head and takes the brunt of the enemy attack. He enables and encourages them by leading them, not just by telling them. In this picture, the words of Jesus have quite a different force. They all find their meaning in the central key word, follow me. In other words, what I want to be able to say to you as a congregation, follow Matt Carpenter as he follows the Lord Jesus Christ. As he follows Jesus into battle, you follow him into battle. That's the question I always ask whenever somebody wants to be a pastor. The first question I ask to myself is, will the men of God follow this man into battle? That's always the question. Well, that's the first thing. Shepherds must lead. What else do they do? Shepherds must feed. They've got to feed the flock. They've got to feed the sheep. And the main way shepherds in the church feed the sheep is by teaching the word of God. We do not live by bread alone. We don't feed on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is our nourishment. It is food for our souls. Think about John chapter 21. And this may be what Peter has in mind when he's writing this passage. Jesus restores Peter three times there to match Peter's threefold denial. He asks, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And each time after Peter answers yes, then Jesus says, feed my lambs or feed my sheep. Well, how, what does that mean? How is Peter going to, to feed Jesus' lambs or his sheep? Well, it's through preaching and teaching the word of God. This is a huge part of the shepherding task. This is how the shepherd ensures that the sheep are fed. It is through God's word. God's word grows, matures, and strengthens the sheep. Feast on the word of God. May this church and my church and every church always be a place where the pastor serves up a big feast of the word of God that you can just gobble up on Sunday. That's what needs to happen. Matt will prepare the meal. Matt, the other elders, whoever's teaching and preaching for you, will prepare the meal. It's your job then to eat every bite of it, to digest it. That is your nourishment. Paul commanded Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word in season and out of season, rebu rebuke, reprove, and exhort with great patience, and instruction. I love that word from Paul, preach the word in season and out of season. Now I will tell you, the word today is definitely out of season. 
But Paul would say, preach it anyway. Preach the word and let the chips fall where they may. Don't let what you think people's responses will be dictate how and what you preach. Simply preach the word. God's given us his word. It's the pastor's job to preach it. Everything in life, everything in culture must be submitted to scripture. The lordship of Christ is inseparable from the lordship of his word. Christ exercises his lordship in the church and in the world through his word. And so what a congregation needs is not entertainment or self-help TED talks or motivational speeches. What the people need is a clear and authoritative exegetical proclamation of God's word constantly. That's what feeds the sheep. So shepherds lead and feed. That's half of it. The other half is they guard and they guide. Let's talk about guarding. Shepherds are to guard the flock. This is because any Christian flock, any Christian congregation is under constant threat. Every flock has enemies. There are always wolves out there or lions, predators seeking to prey upon the sheep. Adam was supposed to be a shepherd to his wife in the Garden of Eden, but he let the serpent, the original false prophet, the original false teacher, mislead her in the sanctuary. As soon as the serpent asked, has God really said? Adam's foot should have been coming down on the skull of the serpent to crush it. As soon as the serpent said, has God really said, Adam's heel should have been coming down to crunch the skull of the serpent. That's what Adam should have done. But he failed as a shepherd. He let the false teacher, the false prophet, have his way in the sanctuary and lead the bride astray, lead the flock astray. David was a warrior shepherd. David shows us this. David fought off threats against his flock, lions and bears. And that prepared him to face a much bigger threat to the national flock of Israel in the form of Goliath. And Goliath is dressed in this scaly armor. He's breathing out blasphemies like the serpent in the garden. And what does David do? David silences him, silences him. He crushes Goliath's head. John Calvin said the pastor must have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for driving away the wolves. In Acts chapter 20, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, fierce wolves will attack the flock. In other words, he's telling the elders of the church in Ephesus, you are the shepherds here, so you are to be the wolf fighters. You are to fight off the, wolf for the, the wolves for the sake of the congregation. Or think about this, how did the Levites become the priestly tribe? How did the Levites get chosen to be the priestly tribe? Well, after the Israelites had committed idolatry with the golden calf, the Levites were the ones who went through the camp with swords to kill the idolaters. They went to war with idolatry in the camp of Israel. Now that's not how we deal with idolatry in the church today. But that's how the Levites became the priestly tribe because they were the ones, man enough, courageous enough, to put the idolaters to death. In fact, I would say you can see here why pastors must be men because pastors have to fight on behalf of the flock. They have to fight against sin and error within the church. They have to fight against external influences and temptations that threaten to infect the church. You know, we shouldn't be putting women in pulpits or on sessions for the same reason we should not be putting them in tanks or in F-16 fighter jets. It's just not where they belong. Women are not made for combat. 
in that way. Pastoring is warfare. It is a masculine task. Pastors are to be fighters. They're to be warriors. They're to know how to go to battle. It is a masculine task. Pastors lead the congregation into battle. They're also the ones who fight off enemies. That's their special responsibility. Pastors set and enforce boundaries. They engage in discipline and debate. They confront error. They protect the weak and the vulnerable. The shepherd fights for the sheep. And the shepherd fights for his sheep because he loves the sheep. His rod and his staff comfort the sheep because he uses his rod and his staff to drive off the wild beasts. See, shepherds in the church today don't fight with swords or slings. But the battles we're called to face often do require the same kind of courage. We pastors fight for the love of the sheep. G.K. Chesterton said the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. And that's a beautiful picture. In the Lord of the Rings series, in the two towers, Aragorn and Theoden, who are both kingly figures, Aragorn and Theoden, um, they know that time is short. Time is running out. They know that their men are trapped deep in Helm's Deep. Defeat now seems certain as the orcs have breached the fortress walls. And King Theoden uh, of Rohan is really ready to give up. And then they have a conversation and Aragorn uh, encourages him. In fact, it's really interesting. The two men, for at least a moment, they represent a contrast between the pagan and the Christian way of fighting. This is how their conversation unfolds. Theoden says, in the face of all of this danger, as the orcs are coming in, he says, so much death, what can men do against such reckless hate? And Aragorn says to him, ride out with me, ride out and meet them. Let's go meet the enemy. Let's fight the enemy. Theoden says back, for death and glory. That will be his motivation if he rides out to fight. It will be for death, how, they, how he wants to be remembered, and for glory, for his own glory. But then Aragorn corrects him, for Rohan and for your people. That's why we need to go fight, for your love of Rohan and your love of your people, not for your own glory and renown after you're dead. Don't fight for what you hate. Don't fight against what you hate. Fight for what you love. That's what Aragorn is saying. That's why pastors fight sin and error. We fight for love. It's because of our love for the church and for our people. It's our love for the body and bride of Christ because the body and bride of Christ is worth fighting for. See, faithful shepherds are not hirelings or mercenaries. No, we are loyal soldiers ready to lay down our lives for the good of the church because that's what shepherds do. I love how Peter Lightheart describes the guarding task of the pastor. He says, if you're not willing to confront the sins of the church and the culture, don't take a step towards the pulpit. If you can't endure the backlash from your congregation or the world outside, don't pretend to preach. If you're not ready to fight, don't become a pastor. And if you are a pastor and have given up fighting, repent or resign. In fact, I think it's really fitting. I read the first part of 1 Peter 5 this morning, right after telling the elders to shepherd the flock. A few verses later, Peter mentions how Satan is prowling around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. See, shepherds are called to protect the flock from this prowling lion from Satan. That is what the pastor is called to do. 
Well, pastors guard, they also guide. What does that mean? How do shepherds guide the sheep? I think the way Peter describes this here, the, the word that Peter uses for the guiding function of the shepherds is right there in the passage. It's that word oversight in verse two. Shepherds are overseers. Think about what it means to be an overseer, what oversight entails. Oversight requires sight, but it is more than that. Oversight means you not only see and therefore can evaluate and understand, but it also means you take responsibility. You move from just seeing to overseeing, from seeing, evaluating, understanding to acting. See, the shepherd doesn't just see where the sheep are going. He oversees them, which means he guides where they go. He directs them. Shepherds don't just see. They see to it. They see to it that the right things happen. They don't just see, they oversee, which means they take responsibility for the sheep entrusted to them. They don't just see, they act. And so if a shepherd sees a disease spreading through the flock, he's gonna find a cure. If a shepherd sees wolves lurking in the pasture, he's not gonna just say, oh, that's interesting. No, he's gonna find a way to drive those wolves off. The shepherd knows where the green pastures and the flowing streams are so he can guide the flock to them. So shepherds lead and feed, they guide and guard. That is the essence of the pastoral work. That is the essence of the work Matt and your other elders here are called to do. But there are a few other details here and we can be much more uh, quick with these. A few other details here that are significant that round out the picture of pastoral ministry that Peter wants us to have. One thing you notice from this is that shepherding is highly relational. It's not just book work or even prayer work, it is people work. Peter says here that the pastor, we can say the pastor certainly needs teaching skills, but he also needs people skills. Peter says here, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. The flock which is among you. Pastors are called to shepherd their own people, not somebody else's people, but their own, which means he has to know his people. Peter is saying, shepherd this flock, not another flock. And so he's saying a wise and faithful shepherd <clears throat> will know his own people. He will live among them. He will be attentive to them. He will know their names and they will know his way of life and he will be familiar with their particular problems and struggles and temptations and tendencies, all of those things that arise in his local context. This is so important because we live in an age of a 24 seven news cycle that so often dictates what we wanna talk about. We live in a world dominated by social media. It is easy for shepherds to ignore the problems of their own sheep and solve the problems that other sheep in other places might have. And in the same way, I would say it's easy for the sheep to go after a kind of virtual shepherd online instead of relying on their local shepherds in their own community. What is Peter saying here when he says among you? He's saying shepherd and sheep need to know one another and share their lives with each other. They need to dwell among one another. They need to share their lives and indwell one another. There's just no substitute for that kind of community. No substitute for that kind of relationship. And then Peter gives three pairs of contrast to further spell out what this shepherding means, how shepherds should shepherd. In verses two and three, he says shepherds should do their work. First, he says, not under compulsion, but willingly. 
Okay, you notice Matt was willing this morning to take those installation vows. We didn't have to hold a gun to his head and say, take these vows and now do this work. No, he undertook the work willingly, even eagerly. And that's what Peter is saying here. I think sometimes we have this idea that a really pious man would have no desire or ambition to lead or hold office in the church. That the really pious man will constantly self-deprecate and talk about how unworthy and unqualified he is. And then we hear stories of how men like Anselm in the Middle Ages, you know, Anselm had to be dragged to his ordination service in chains and had to have the pastoral staff forced into his hand in order for him to become a bishop. And we think, oh, wow, that's so godly. He didn't want it. And they had to force it upon him. I don't think that's the right picture. I think this has to be something you undertake willingly. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, if a man desires the position of overseer, he desires a good work. It is a holy ambition. Now, it is true a man could desire pastoral office for the wrong reasons, for his own glory and his own gain. He could be too eager for the position, not understanding the, the burdens and responsibilities that come with the office. But Peter here is reminding us of an error on the opposite side. A good shepherd will willingly undertake this work and this office. You won't have to force it on him. He's not going to despise the difficulties and the duties involved. He will embrace them. God's given him talents. He wants to multiply those talents. God's given him a flock to care for. He wants to grow and mature that flock. He undertakes the work willingly. Second, Peter says the shepherd should be motivated not by dishonest gain, but should do the work eagerly. No pastor should be in it for the money. Now, yes, pastors should be normally paid, but they should not be enticed into the work by a greedy desire for monetary gain. They should do the work with an eager heart because they love the church and they love the sheep and they love what the office represents. They love the work that comes with it. They love the word of God. They love to preach and teach the word of God. And finally, Peter says, not lording it over the people, but as examples to the flock. A pastor must live an exemplary life that others can imitate. He must lead in an exemplary way that shows others how to be in and under authority. Hebrews 13 says to the people, says to a congregation, consider your leaders and the outcome of their lives and then imitate them. Consider your leaders, how they've lived their lives, the outcome, the fruit that has borne, and now go copy them, go imitate them in your own life. That means the leaders in the church are to live exemplary lives that produce the kind of fruit you would wanna see in your own life, in your own family. A domineering, power-hungry shepherd who enjoys bossing others around is going to be a very bad shepherd. That is not how leadership works in the church. The shepherds are to lead through humble service. They're to exercise their authority with both courage and compassion for the good of the sheep. It's like Jesus said, his disciples are not to rule as the Gentiles do, lording it over their subjects, he says, it shall not be so among you. There ought to be a clear difference between the kind of leadership you see in the church and the kind of leadership you see in the pagan world. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And he said he came not to be served, but to serve. That is the model. 
And so faithful shepherds will shepherd willingly because they have a desire to help the church eagerly rather than for monetary gain and humbly rather than in domineering ways. That's how Peter describes it. E.M. Bounds said, the fortune of the gospel is committed to the pastor. He either makes or mars the message. The man can either live a life consistent with the message and help it, or he can live inconsistent with that message and hinder it. The way the pastor lives can help or hinder the spread of the gospel. I think Bounds is right. Gregory the Great said, pastors must beware of seeking to draw the bride's eyes to themselves rather than pointing them to Christ. And that is exactly right. The whole purpose of shepherding is to point people to the chief shepherd, to the good shepherd, Jesus himself. And I love what Robert Murray Machane said, it is not great talents God blesses in the ministry. It is great likeness to Jesus. A holy pastor is a mighty weapon in the hand of God. And you need to pray. That's what your pastor and your elders will be. Mighty weapons in the hand of God. Because faithful pastoring, it is hard work. It is hard work. But a faithful pastor, a holy pastor is a mighty weapon in the hand of God. Peter then goes on in verse four to promise the faithful pastor a reward, a crown of glory that will not fade away as if to say all the work, the labor, the sacrifice, the suffering, it's all worth it because a crown of glory is coming. And then in verse five, Peter gives a charge to the congregation. And so I charge you, the congregation of Trinity Reformed with these words from 1 Peter 5, 5. He specifically addresses here the younger members of the church, but it applies to everybody. Maybe the younger members because they're the ones who would need it most but it applies to the whole body. Peter says, submit yourselves to your elders. It's that simple. Hebrews 13 says, submit yourselves in such a way that their work among you is a joy. That's what it ought to look like. Peter says, this is how you clothe yourself with humility. And remember, God gives grace to the humble. How can you manifest humility before God? By submitting yourself to the leadership God has given you. Not because they're perfect and flawless men. They're certainly not. No church has perfect and flawless pastors and elders. But because this is the way God has designed church life to work. And when a church follows this divine plan, this divine model, it becomes a catalyst for growth and maturation. This pattern is God's design for the church. This is what a well-ordered congregation looks like. You have faithful, courageous, and wise shepherds leading a submissive, obedient, and humble flock. A church with shepherds who shepherd like the chief shepherd and with sheep who follow these shepherds as a way of following the chief shepherd is a church that will strike a great blow for the gospel. Such a church is a mighty weapon in the hand of God because it's got a holy pastor and a holy people, a chief, uh, an under shepherd who is following the chief shepherd and a flock who are following that under shepherd as he follows the chief shepherd. And that is God's design. That is God's model for the church. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.